0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about industrial design and archaeology. On this episode, I have a fascinating conversation with Josh Owen. Josh is an industrial designer and professor at the Rochester Institute of Technology, where he teaches in both the undergraduate and graduate industrial design programs and works closely with the Vignelli Center for Design Studies. He's also the author of the fascinating book, Lenses for Design. I sort of accidentally met Josh... Actually, back in 2007, I was a freshman in college at Philadelphia University in the graphic design program, and Josh uh, was on the faculty there at the time in the industrial design program. And on the first day of the new student orientation, faculty from each of the design departments came to speak to the new students, and Josh spoke about the industrial design program. And I honestly can't remember what he said, but I remember really liking it and finding it really inspiring and thinking, this guy thinks about design the way I want to think about design. And so after the presentation, I went up to him and introduced myself and and told him that I was studying graphic design, but uh, actually really liked his talk and hoped that I would be able to take a class with him sometime In the future, but I actually ended up transferring out of Philadelphia University after that first semester and never talked to him again uh, until now, until this conversation. And so, in this episode, I try to figure out how he thinks about design and why it resonated with me so much. Uh, back in 2007 as this like 18-year-old new designer. We talk about his early childhood going to uh, archaeological digs with his father and how this fostered a a really early interest in both material culture and anthropology that has led to and influenced the career that he's had now. We talk about the balance between studio practice and, and academia and how those influence each other and how teaching kind of influences the work that he's doing today. I loved this conversation. I've obviously been a fan of Josh and his work for well over a decade now. and So it was so nice to talk about all of these things that we're both uh, very interested in. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as uh, previews of the upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships, so if you like the show and want to see it continue and help with its ongoing production, I hope that you consider joining. Thank you for listening and enjoy this conversation with Josh Owen. I was kind of preparing for this and kind of thinking about you and thinking what I wanted to talk to you about, that you originally studied, you did kind of a double, double major in sculpture and anthropology. And I saw you talk about this in in a lecture that I watched. And in it, you kind of say that you were in that program for a couple of years before you realized that those two things combined were design. And I'm kind of interested in what you were interested in before you realized it was design, what kind of, um, what were you excited about? What kind of life were you kind of imagining for yourself at that time?
1: Sure, sure. That's a great question um, because I do come to uh, a design career in a, in a, maybe a little bit of an unusual way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I grew up in an academic household. My father was a professor mm-hmm. at Cornell University and uh, an archaeologist. And a linguist and hmm. um, an historian. So, uh, growing up um, in the summers, I would go with him on his archaeological digs, mostly oh, nice. in the Middle East. And that, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, it was a, it was a life that um, was really intriguing to me. Um, It you know it conjures images when you talk about archaeology of uh, bull whips and Indiana Jones, but the reality (laughs) is is much less sexy. Um, You know he was he was doing his research and his field work um, took us uh, to some pretty inhospitable places, kind of desert environments where we you know set up camp with uh, his students and his colleagues, and we'd scrape away layers of earth day after day in scorching heat, you know, getting up at four in the morning, uh, dragging buckets of earth and and sifting for little bits, little shards of pottery and uh, artifacts that, you know, taken together with his research and his uh, expertise and and that of his colleagues and his students, um, created a picture of a time gone by, you know, um, mm-hmm. and so we, this, this curiosity and this kind of hard work led to um, helping to move uh, kind of, you know, our, our, our history uh, forward by understanding what it means um, in today's context. And, and so that, that, that those are my summers, you know, it was uh, yeah. Summer camp wasn't an option because uh, I was I was good unpaid labor for him, <laughs> right, uh, right? And uh, and like I said, you know, it, it sounds exotic, but in a way, it was just all I knew, and I loved it. I loved the hard work. I loved the mystery. I loved trying to mm. solve um, the problems that that we would uh, that we would find, and the answers were in the details. You know, the answers were mm. all in the artifacts and the artifacts were the byproduct of technology and materials. Mm -hmm. And so I guess you could say the curiosity, the intellectual side, the um, you know, the history and and the theory and the practice, all that um, was kind of, was given to me and I took to it. Um, But then there was this other side of me from as, as long back as, as I can remember. And my parents talk about it too. Um, I was drawing and I was building stuff, you know, and that didn't really come from either my parents. I mean, there's some uh, lineage back there, you know, a couple of folks in the, in the way back that had some creative uh, inclinations. But, yeah. uh, but that, that was this sort of parallel thing. And, um, you know, I guess as, as an academic, um, you know, my father sort of hoped <laughs> that, I, that I might uh, choose something that, uh, that made some sense in, in his universe and uh and so i he was he and my mother were incredibly um incredibly um nurturing and uh they very much uh were happy with i think anything that that i wanted to do but the uh, the sort of artistic inclinations were a little bit of a mystery to them so uh fast forward to uh you know finishing high school um i didn't really know what i wanted to do i had some thought that um I would do something creative. I'd been nurturing the, uh, the sort of drawing and making of things throughout my growing up. I'd been playing a lot of music. There was a lot of creative stuff going on in my life, but I was also wildly passionate about history. And uh, so I thought, well, maybe archaeology or anthropology. Um, And I took a year off after high school. I traveled a lot around the Middle East. I took some courses in Tel Aviv uh, at the university. I kind of wrapped my head around uh, what, what a bigger world looked like. And, uh, and then uh, applied to Cornell uh, from there. And I applied to fine arts uh, originally with the thinking that, well, it's a big university, it's a robust place where mm-hmm. there's so many intellectual pursuits available to me. I'll just do the thing that I love and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it in mm. the, uh, the liberal arts that I can dig into. And then once I kind of got on the ground, I, I realized that it was possible to, uh, to spend an extra year and to get a second degree. And in fact, a lot of fine artists, things like art history, to wrap around their, um, targeted education, professional education. So I, um, I dug around and, uh, no pun intended. And I, um, <laughs> discovered that,
0: uh, so it went right over my head.
1: <laughs> I discovered that, uh, anthropology was in fact, something that I could, um, wrap around, um, mm-hmm. my degree in fine arts. And furthermore, there was a fascinating guy uh, by the name of Robert Asher, who was a professor there, um, who had sort of been banished from the anthropology department into its, uh, you know, kind of dank basement. He <laughs> <It> was a <laughs> remarkable guy who didn't fit in even within anthropology, um, whose area of expertise was visual studies and at the time mm. visual studies wasn't really a discipline in fact right. it is now at, at cornell right. <laughs> but i had to i remember i had to fight <laughs> tooth and nail to get all kinds of you know red tape cleared to to call that my major so it was sort of um anthropology with a focus on on uh, visual studies visual systems so i was you know kind of <laughs> picking and choosing my curriculum from architecture and from film and from uh, anthropology and um and i i you know as i said i sort of wrapped that around my study of sculpture and what happened was in the midst of all that um kind of um sifting of information um just to drag this archaeological metaphor <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah i'm loving this further, um
1: <laughs> <laughs> i uh i applied for a scholarship in my, I guess, the end of my sophomore year to study abroad in Rome at mm. the encouragement of uh, one of my professors. And, uh, and I won this scholarship, which, uh, you know, I, I don't think I would have been able to pull off the study abroad without the, the money that that gave me, um, coming from an academic household at that time. <laughs> um, but I, I got this great uh, grant, and uh and it was it was uh based on the body of work i submitted so i was very proud that you know the work i'd been doing uh in anthropology and sculpture kind of validated this uh study abroad experience and i i had packed up and headed to rome and uh i had every intention of kind of going into the studio and carving stone but mm. uh you know, a hot minute after I got there, I realized that it would be a complete waste of my time to be in a cavernous, you know, space carving yeah. stone when I had sort of this unbelievable kind of, uh, you know, window into uh, history around me. So I, mm-hmm. I pretty quickly, you know, bought a dozen sketchbooks and just, you know, headed out to draw and I was in heaven. I remember just, you know, sitting in front of Bernini's and Michelangelo's and, uh, you know, Caravaggio's and, and yeah. walking the streets and, and soaking up the, uh, the urban fabric of Rome. And, uh, and I, I, it hit me uh, kind of like a bolt of lightning. I mean, I don't, I usually say these things don't happen to designers. <laughs> But uh, it, it hit me that these um, maestri, these these great uh, um, artists, as we're told, you know, Da Vinci's and the Michelangelos and so on, weren't uh, artists as I had uh, mm-hmm. thought of them. In fact, mm-hmm. these were you know artists, engineers, architects uh, mm-hmm. who were commissioned to do design projects, which were, you know, communication projects above all. Uh, Integrated, you know, technology, they integrated materiality, they integrated messaging. uh, And their, you know, the ethos of these characters were were all similar. And and I discovered that, you know, at that time, um, the people that I saw in industry who were sort of, you know, the, the typical kind of you know, um, uh, modernist architects and industrial designers, uh, were, were very similar in their kind of DNA. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I discovered industrial design at that time. I thought, wow, you know, what have I, what have I been doing all these years? You know, I've been studying kind of the behavioral aspects of, you know, uh, culture and, um, and people and, and so on with my studies in anthropology and then I've been studying materials and technologies and form giving mm-hmm. and, and sculpture you know taken together that sounds a lot like design <laughs> yeah. did so, you <laughs> yeah
0: did you see you know I mean I I know exactly what you're talking about and I think you know obviously with um in retrospect it's really easy to see how those th- Two sides connected, but before that, did you see a relationship between what you were kind of doing in the studio, the the kind of sculptural work, and the anthropological work, or did these just seem like two kind of separate interests for you at the time, or or were you kind of seeing parallels between them before you realized design as that connection point? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I do know what you mean, and I. I, you know, we were all 18 once, right? And <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I did see some of those connections. Okay. You know, I, I, I try to impart this, you know, to my students every day because I think sometimes they look at me and they think, oh, well, you know, his, his path has been so linear, you know. But <laughs> I, I didn't know. Um, and I, I'm right. always delighted when I meet people who, you know, 16, and they know they want to be an industrial designer or an architect or whatever. I think it's wonderful, but I don't think I knew. I think um, I was always very passionate about my interests. You know, I I didn't mm-hmm. do things halfway. I kind of threw myself in, um, and and I, I sort of followed the thread as far as I could take it. Um, right. That's that's just you know that's part of my you know the the, the virus that I have, I guess. As, as, but, um, but yeah, so I was, I was playing out these things. I was following these threads with, with great passion and um, they were kind of happening in parallel. And uh, I had amazing mentorship over the years that, that helped guide me. I think, you know, when I was in, um, in, uh, in undergrad at Cornell um, working in sculpture, I was working under uh, the tutelage of uh, a professor called Roberto Bertoya. And he's actually uh, a relative of Harry Bertoia, the, the great um, designer, sculptor. Uh, and Roberto, you know, was was uh, was following my work. He was mentoring me. And because of his personal knowledge of design, I mean, he was a sculptor in the, in the great tradition of, you know, Brancusi and, and my uh, sculptors. But, you know, because of his... Um, knowledge of, of history and practice, uh, and, and his awareness of design. Um, I think he, he helped kind of, he helped me to find that design was where I belonged. And I, I started to realize that I wasn't making works of sculpture, um, to satisfy my ego, my, mm. and my own, uh, mm-hmm. you know, challenges or to, to air my grievances or, you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't making art, you know, I was more passionate about the formal elements. I was, I was curious about making things that anticipated the way people would interact with them. And I think that's where the anthropological thread was sort of making yeah. its way in. And I sort of realized that I wasn't an artist's artist. And I think that, <laughs> You know, I might have made beautiful yeah. things or interesting things, but my heart wasn't in it the way some of my, you know, cures would, you know, would, would you know, kind of cut their veins open and bleed fine art. That, that wasn't <laughs> right. That, that right. Wasn't me. right. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I love art, uh, but I was realizing that I wasn't an artist. There were, you know, I wanted to follow a brief. I wanted to make things that had a functional inclination that we're moving that dialogue forward, which is, is a different dialogue than the fine arts dialogue. And so I guess, you know, it was around that time, you know, towards the, the, the tail end of my undergraduate, that I started to see how the the behavioral elements, the social and the um, critical elements that, that come from studying culture uh, would begin to, uh, to influence my work as a mm-hmm.
0: And so from, I just want to, I just want to kind of like finish this thread because it's, <laughs> everything that you said, I have like 20 questions that I can ask you about that. <laughs> I, I, I have, I, I so I, but I don't want to just kind of cut off your, um, your kind of education. So after Cornell, then yeah. did you go immediately to RISD or did you, were no, you working between them?
1: There was another okay. thread.
0: <laughs> okay. okay. So
1: I told you as a kid, I was you know pretty passionate about lots of yeah. like, creative avenues. Well, as far back as I can remember, I, I've been playing the guitar. And, okay. Uh, and, I, and so I was in bands throughout mm-hmm. growing up, and, and when I was at Cornell, I met a couple of people who had the same mm-hmm. vision I did, in terms of music. <laughs> and, uh, I, I feel somewhat fortunate that all this happened before the internet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I find much
1: on this, but um, but at any rate, uh, I was in this serious band in, in college. And, you know, it consisted of myself playing guitar and uh, this amazing uh, kind of poet uh, writer who was a, also a writer and an anthropologist who mm. was singing or rapping or whatever you want to call it and uh, <laughs> screaming from time to time. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And a, and a, a genius bass player and, uh, and a drummer. Actually, we had it was like Spinal Tap. We had like 10 drummers who kept exploding. into <laughs> nice. Globules. nice um finally we landed that's awesome one genius at the end yeah great so we were playing throughout university and we you know we played gigs uh uh nights and weekends uh we made a little bit of money and we had a whole lot of fun and uh we weren't like a cover band we were passionate about innovating and we wrote Mm -hmm. tons of music and so you know, college was coming to a close and the four of us all had really clear trajectories, you know, with our, our academic lives. But we were diehard musicians and we started playing, right. you know, we were getting like we played at CBGB's in New York. and we, Oh, nice. Uh, we recorded a couple of you know albums that we self-produced and then we started to get label interest and we were like, oh, boy. Maybe <laughs> maybe we should just stick around for a while. So everybody was going to apply to grad school, and we all said, or "The four of us said, okay, let's put it on hold for a year and let's keep okay, you know, let's play this out." So we yeah. did, and we had so much fun, and we wrote what we thought was you know amazing music, and, and I still am proud of what we did, and I I never. Uh, change it, you know. But uh, we we did towards the end of about a year, year and a half after university, or after we were out of university and we were playing, realized that it was going to take, you know, full commitment from all of right. us and a really um, serious kind of abandonment of you know our other kind of directions to do this and. The consensus, and we all kind of agreed on this, was that um, we we didn't want to grow old doing that. We wanted to <laughs> grow old doing the other things that we were passionate about. Right. And it, it I, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to suggest that it was um, easy, but I, I am really glad, and I think we're all glad that we made that choice because. We all really flourished in that other thing that we were doing. And we all just sort of said, hey, we had an amazing time. That was super fun.
0: Yeah. So to answer oh, your question. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah. I had
1: this like parallel existence for a while. And yeah. uh, and then um, we, we just after a year and change, we all kind of, you know, reinitiated our applications to grad school. And, okay. Uh, okay. I, uh, I ended up selecting RISD. And I'm happy to tell you about that choice if you like.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you, and you studied furniture design. I did. There was yeah. that, okay. And uh, so at that point where you kind of like, you had kind of figured out design was the thing you were kind of all in that. What was it about furniture design? And maybe, maybe a bigger question also just mm-hmm. um, because I haven't talked to many industrial designers, the uh, kind of, nomenclature there, if, if there, if that is significant of kind of furniture design versus industrial design, how those fit together. Cause I'm not even totally familiar with those worlds and how they, how they operate. Well,
1: I think, you know, again, I, you know, I, I've, I've followed my, my intuition a lot, um, moving into my career and I, I continue to do that today. I think, uh, mm-hmm. um, my, my two kids will often say, uh, you're such a good planner and such a good, um, dad. You always seem to know. And I said, well, you know, it's, I don't always know, but I, I trust my judgment. I trust my, instinct a lot. I follow it. Even if it takes me down a rock and roll wormhole. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think it, it just spoke to me as a medium that was the, possibly the most like, Obvious connection between um, anthropology and yeah um, yeah and, and the study of forms and materials. You know, I I saw the landscape, and this was way before the internet. You know, the, the Milan Furniture Fair was was almost invisible to those of us working in the states. But I knew that you know there were people operating in that domain and delivering innovation through the medium. And it's such a You know, a tangible medium because it's it's so materials based, and there was so much exploration happening in that medium. Uh, Sort of, you know, it's like personal architecture, and that's the way it appeared to me at that time. So, uh, I also um, started to explore furniture uh, while while I was playing music that year. Okay, Uh, okay. You know, there's so many stories to tell, right? But um, (laughs) yeah, I, I was I was poor. Very poor. (laughs) Mm. Um, And I got a guest artist residency at Cornell in one of the themed dorms after I graduated. That's how I was Mm. able to kind of keep a roof over my head. During that time I was playing in the band, I I taught workshops to architects and and artists uh, while I was living for a year free in this wonderful dorm at Cornell. And uh, my professor, of sculpture was kind of letting me sneak into the sculpture studio to do a little work. And what I was doing was driving around to, uh, old mills, uh, lumber mills and yeah. grabbing cutoffs of, uh, of big tree trunks that they you know, didn't use. Yeah. They were given to me for free and I would rent a chainsaw and I would carve furniture out of them. Um, and I did all kinds I love of crazy experiments. And this was how I was like exploring the medium. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I spent, I actually have a whole body of work from that year. You know, when I wasn't up late playing music, I was, you know, right. with the chainsaw. Um, so so there, was a, there was something really magnetic for me about furniture. And uh, to be honest, at the time I was, uh, I, I remember I had been accepted by RISD and Cranbrook. And I was, I was mm. just so torn Because at the time, Cranbrook was doing fascinating uh, things, very, very theoretical, uh, Mm -hmm. closer to industrial design. Um, But uh, RISD um, attracted me because at that moment, it was being run by uh, a woman. The furniture design was being uh, run by a woman by the name of Roseanne Summerson. Oh, yeah happens now to be the president of Rhode Island School.
0: Yeah, I'm actually going to, I'm interviewing her uh, next week for the podcast.
1: That's so funny. Well, uh, you know, we'll we'll say hi across the airwaves here. But (laughs) um, it was Roseanne that uh, really attracted me um, because, you know, when I went to the program, I saw this incredibly diverse cohort of furniture designers. There were, you know, there was this Japanese guy, experimenting with you know um, crazy kind of phosphorescent materials and then there was a you know this this woman uh, uh, who was making paper stuff and this other guy who was carving Mm -hmm. like you know ball cloth feeded you know things very traditional Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then there were people you know over in glass that were collaborating people over in sculpture that were collaborating people in design that i you know had access to and i thought God, this place is so diverse. Um, and I, uh, and in talking to Roseanne, I thought, I can really see myself being part of a, a really mm-hmm. rich dialogue here. And, and it's less focused, <laughs> I think, mm-hmm. uh, than what I, I, I thought, than what I saw at Cranbrook. But they were apples and oranges. And I thought, you know what? I know I can I thrive here. And uh, so I jumped in and I, I never looked back. And it was amazing. Uh, and, uh, and Roseanne, you know, was a big part of growing the culture of furniture design yeah. there, which is, you know, has is, is, is started the careers of many, many uh, interesting yeah. designers. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's what pulled me into furniture design. And I really uh, am so thankful that, uh, that I went that way. And uh, I had such great mentorship there, not just from Roseanne, but also from a guy called John Dunnigan and others. It was, uh, it was great.
0: I want to, I find, I find this so interesting and the way that you are kind of talking about your education, really interesting, especially as I've, you know, spent the last couple of weeks looking at your work and kind of thinking about how you think about your work, Mm -hmm. because it, it strikes me how formative, you know, going all the way back to those summers with your dad seems like that really clearly shapes how you think about design today. And, in uh, you, you wrote something uh, where you said something to the effect of that it's the designer's job, not just to embed meaning, but also to decode meaning. Mm-hmm. And that feels very anthropological. Yeah. Uh, that seems like that kind of comes from your dad. Um, and, and, you know, kind of digging up these old artifacts. And, something that I think about a lot, a definition of design that I've started using is that design is ideology made artifact. It's kind of taking ways of thinking, points of views, ways of seeing the world and turning them into physical reality, whether that is a product, a poster, a building. Mm -hmm. And that seems very fundamental to how you think about not just your work, but also the process of design. And I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about that and how that Manifests itself in your own work and in the design that you're doing kind of thinking about bringing in the theory and the history in how that relates to materials colors you know the products themselves
1: well i i am just uh, insufferably curious uh, about mm-hmm. everything really but um <laughs> You know, yeah, I, me too. I, I, yeah, I think it's what binds a lot of us as designers. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I feel that, um, you know, that there's so much evidence around us. And as designers, like, you know, as you point to, um, we have the ability to decode uh, the built environment. And beyond that, we, mm-hmm. you know, we mm-hmm. understand, you know, how to translate behavior into substance. And we have uh, empathy or those of us that feel that's important. <laughs> More people uh, will understand this cue. But, um, you know, I, I think having uh, the combination of, of keen observational um, skills and empathic um, reasoning uh, gives us this kind of, you know, key to the city of ideas and that we right. can um we can decode and we can make intuitive and simple um that which is uh, extraordinary com- extraordinarily complex to many and i and i uh, i try to teach that um in any way i can i mean i as i you know i think it's clear i, I try to lead by example or teach by example but i also um you know um, try to share my own lenses, um, as mm-hmm. possible. And, and, you know, I've, I've done it uh, by evangelizing in these kinds of formats. I've done it by you know writing books and sharing my experiences. Um, I do it in the classroom on a day-to-day basis, uh, by, uh, leveraging, um, the things that are around us. I collect objects. I collect examples of things that work and that don't work both historical and temporary um I, I spend a good deal of my time and this is yet another conversation um in the vignelli center for design
0: yeah i would love to talk about that too if we have time yeah it's uh i mean one
1: of the reasons that i'm here at rit um is because of its formation i you know i was uh, mm. um, exploring the opportunity here at rit uh, uh just over a decade uh, ago today and um you know, I uh, at that time, my uh, esteemed colleague Roger Remington, who's the uh, the Vignelli Distinguished Professor here and who's the director of our Vignelli Center, um, had just you know completed many years worth of uh, work with Massimo and Lella Vignelli and mm. uh, their friends and, and, and donors and, and uh, upper administration here at RIT to to, to uh, build this facility that I'm sitting right now, actually. Mm. Um, And the idea was to um, have a a rich archive of the process through which uh, Massimo and Lella uh, designed their their many uh, varied works that would be accessible to students, faculty, scholars, those who are interested. Um, and, and so I was smitten. I thought, you know, well, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it was not a simple equation. I mean, I was looking primarily at the industrial design program and what value I could add to that. And that's another story. Uh, but the, Vignelli center was, uh, was a piece of the equation that was important for me here, uh, and how I could link that, um, to the, to the industrial design program and beyond. So, you know, um one example of, of kind of leveraging this unique kind of designer insight that we're talking about, this, this decoding is, um, is following, uh, you know, what was Massimo's dream, which was to not to have his work enshrined. I mean, you know, there were lots of places that would, yeah. lots of more visible places <laughs> in the universe that would have gladly taken the archive <laughs> the differenti- yeah. Yeah, yeah. differentiating factor was that, um, he wanted it used. He wanted mm, his insights mm. uh, to be shared so that um, we wouldn't forget about history. You know, I mean, he saw the writing on the wall, and, you know, uh, how depressing the universe is these days. Nobody reads. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, we have a habit of letting history slip away um, and getting slapped mm-hmm. in the face. But um you know what he wanted was was these you know principles that he fought so hard to evangelize to be um, to be shared. So you know I am in the archives, uh, you know, sharing uh, this uh, process that he and Lella archived so beautifully uh, with students. We we embed that uh, the the artifacts of, of process into many of the courses that we have Hmm. developed so that students are are learning from these things. Um, And I've, I've taken it further. Now I've I've, I've started a collections initiative, which I call product time capsule, which now has, um, I think we have uh, around 19 different uh, projects, which is it's uh, the the goal is to bring in um, items that uh, tell rich stories, of their development and, and follow a little bit of the kind of modernist ethos of that we kind of, um, you know, fall into mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. center and, uh, and rather than just archiving, a, a, a beautiful object, we, um, search, uh, long and hard to find, uh, an arrangement with the designer and the company or a combination of the two so that we can, uh, essentially time capsule, uh, a story from right. start to finish. And so we've got. 19 of these time capsules, and they range from uh, uniform wear's First Watch, the British company that does such beautiful watchmaking, to, um, you know, we've got Marcel Wander's rope chair. We've got uh,
0: mm-hmm. one of
1: Wendell Castle's uh, fiberglass chairs in the 60s and all of his drawings and models and so on. And we use those things on a regular basis as teaching tools. And to have study collections like this, where you have hands-on uh, experiences in today's day and age <laughs>
0: when, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. assumptions
1: are made based on tweets rather than sitting in a chair and testing right. it for yourself right. um the impact is just so dramatic with uh with education so um so i guess you could say you know it's it's these insights this uh decoding which is as important as the encoding and the two have to be fluid mm-hmm. and regularly imparted, I think, to, to manifest, uh, you know, a brighter next generation of, of designer.
0: I want to, um, you know, you mentioned the Vignelli center, you mentioned teaching and you've basically been teaching kind of simultaneously through your entire career with your your practice and i'm something that i'm really interested in is is the overlap in the intersection between academia and practice and how those influence each other the value of being a practitioner for academia but then also being in academia for your um kind of commercial work how do those overlap or kind of intersect for you sure well this is where podcasts suck right because we need visuals. <laughs> I'm kidding, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, no, because actually uh, <laughs>
1: I was just interviewed by a colleague of mine and asked me to talk about my triadic model. And that sounds very uh, academic, but in, in practice, what that is, is a little graphic that's I uh, use uh, in lectures. It's in my lenses for design book. Um, okay. And it, it's a little triangle and it, it seems like all good design. It seems simple, but it's really embedded with a, a lot of meaning. It's a triangle and, you know, the equal sides and, and the top uh, is pointing up and, and on the top, it has the word um, personal uh, and uh, or and then on the uh, on one uh, of the uh, sides uh, towards mm-hmm. the bottom, let's say on the right or the left, it says uh, academic and then the other side, uh, it says practice and the academic and the practice Mm. are on two sides of the triangle that are sitting on the same, uh, ground plane. So all these things appear equal. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, this is like a a guiding graphic for me, you know, like my, my personal life (laughs) is, is everything for me. I mean, it's my wife, my kids, my my brother, my parents, my, you know, my friends, my colleagues, like Mm -hmm. everything, there is on the top of that triangle. Without that support network, without that balance, without that focus, without all of that, I, I would be nothing. I mean, you know, I I'm a person I yeah, a job yeah, yeah. like anybody else, even though students sometimes, you know, think that uh, they can't imagine me eating food or, you know, like the <laughs> problem of, of uh being a professor sometimes. Yeah. But um you know that that's super important. That's why that's at the top and That's what keeps me centered as a, as a human on the planet. Uh, but then the, the having practice and academics on the same plane is a super important gesture because it shows, or it, it, it it explains that those two things happen at once and they intersect. Mm. And, you know, in a, in a industry related, uh, field like design, uh, a field, which is so, um, practically focused, uh, mm-hmm. it's hard to remove. Um, I think the, um, the industry forward thought process, the connection to, um, the you know, manufacturers and, uh, the technologists mm-hmm. and, uh, and just the field. Uh, you, you can't remove that from academics in this, area of of academia so um right so i've i've always tried to keep my practice strong and my teaching strong and i've tried to grow them you know in parallel um so that they can intersect and i and they are distinctly separate i don't have a studio in my office at RIT, (laughs) you know and uh Right. But there are many synergies and many overlaps. Um, and I think that uh, it helps me to stay current uh, for my student. Mm-hmm. And, I, yeah. and in fact, I think that you know my <laughs> clients very much value my academic perspective. In other words, you know, I, I, I pick and choose my clients carefully. Yeah. I have yeah, to. Yeah. I don't have the time to take on a million projects. But I, and I've also learned to think of that as a great um, opportunity and a, and a great privilege to focus on projects that are meaningful, not just to me, but to society as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's not that simple. <laughs> right, and right. The triadic course. graphic makes it simple. Um, and so... I often uh, you know I'll have colleagues say, you know, I remember that little triangle graphic and I think about that or students say that to me. And I think, well, you know, there's something to it. Um, there' yeah. a guiding, you know kind of uh, chart that I use um, yeah. to move forward.
0: <laughs> Can you talk just a little bit more about kind of when you mentioned that your clients value your academic, Uh, approach and I'm maybe the sub question or or the kind of question behind the question is how has teaching changed your own process or the way you think about design or being a designer?
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question. I I think that, um, you know, teaching keeps me engaged in a critical dialogue about Mm -hmm. what's important. Design. my colleagues, my students constantly challenged mm-hmm. my perceptions and, um, you know, as well as I do, that, that every, um, you know, generation shifts their priorities. I witness in my students, um, you know, the, the incremental changes and sometimes great changes in culture Day to day basis, and I, I mean that in every sense of the word. Um, and I think you know a lot of times when you're in corporate, um, you you miss those shifts. You, know, you, you right. you're, you're in the right. bubble. You you get the statistics, but you don't live with them. I mean, uh, faculty you know have to wear many many hats and. Yeah. And it's a good thing I shaved my head because I got a lot of that I got <laughs> to take with, yeah. with the leadership roles that I play and, and the myriad, um, you know, uh, cohorts that I have to wrangle and participate in. It it keeps me nimble. I mean, I I really believe mm-hmm. that, and and maybe. It's not entirely true. Maybe I'm, I'm getting old like the rest of us, but, um, but I do, um, really believe that, that the challenging discourse, um, keeps me fresh in the work that I do yeah. as a professional. And I, I've heard, you know, time and time again from, from clients that, um, I, you know, I don't know they'll say that they respect that, but I think that they are, very curious about that they want to understand you know um how to make things which are better for the world and um maybe that's my choice of clients as well but uh but i Mm -hmm. think the increasing pressure to make enduring choices is coming um you know from from all of my partners and I, i feel equipped to help them um to do that because of uh of of how I, you know, evolve pedagogy here in, in the university.
0: What are you thinking about now? What are the kind of issues, the topics? What's next? Kind of where, where's your mind right now as you kind of think about your work, this discipline you're teaching?
1: Well, I mean, I think like most of us who have half a brain, we're deeply concerned for the state of our global society yeah um yeah and the, the
0: i had a feeling that's where you were going to go yeah, <laughs> with yeah, this question you know, with a few minutes
1: left i don't think i want to end on a downer but um you know <laughs> designers i think uh, are are generally optimists i like to think of myself as mm-hmm. a kind of a cautious optimist or, Yeah, yeah, or yeah 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 another way i like to frame it uh, obama said this once and i thought that's just exactly what i think um and that is that he thought of himself as a romantic pragmatist and
0: I, I love mm, that framing yeah I,
1: I truly <laughs> yeah can, that's great you know uh, like that but anyway, um I so I am not um I, I am I am I'm optimistic about the future because I feel that here you know in the walls of uh academia that that um you know I'm helping build it and I see you know these young people who are so committed um, to to making things right, and so um, mm-hmm. you know so there are days when I feel like my job is to just sit back and make sure the spotlight <laughs> aimed yes. properly. And,
0: yeah, and yeah.
1: So you know, education is is um, is the key to so many of our disparities, so many of our uh, problems. And, lack of understanding and, and faith in one another. So, you know, to that end, I've been writing uh, a second book, which uh, mm-hmm. I, I hope will be finished in the next year or so. Uh, and that focuses uh, on lessons learned in the classroom. Uh, my first book, oh, nice. the Lenses for Design book, really was kind of lessons learned in the field. And, you know, with the hopeful you know, feeling that that others could learn from those. And and this book um, really is a parallel volume uh, exposing uh, what I've experienced in the classroom and
0: beyond. Oh, that's so interesting. So I think that's one thing. And then,
1: yeah, I got a lot of other product booking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm so mad you brought up that book at like right at the end. I could... I could talk to you about that for another hour for, for part two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was so interesting to me. It, it's fascinating. I feel like we kind of think about these things very similarly and it was really nice and refreshing to hear someone kind of talk about it from a field that I admittedly know less than I should about this. This was so interesting. I'm, I'm a fan of your work and the way you think about this. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, it was my pleasure. really enjoyed talking with you and, uh, you know, I
1: feel like we could, we could do this again. <laughs> yeah,
0: we should. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This episode was recorded on September 25th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingsurface.fm. Thanks for listening.